This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In their new book, Smogtown, The Lung-Burning History of Pollution in Los Angeles, our guests today, Chip Jacobs and William J. Kelly, tell the story of pollution, progress, and how an optimistic people confronted the epic struggle against airborne poisons barraging their hometowns. Jacobs is the author of Wheeling the Deal and has reported for the Los Angeles Times, The Daily News of Los Angeles, LA Weekly, and CNN. Kelly has written on environmental and energy issues for 25 years and is senior correspondent for California Energy Circuit. His articles have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, San Francisco Chronicle, California Journal, and LA Weekly. Chip Jacobs and William Kelly, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good to be here. Okay. Uh, how are you guys doing today? Are you both in Pasadena area? Um, yes, we are. Okay. Now, is that you, Chip? That, that is me. Okay. Very good. Now, which one of you came up with the idea for this book for us? You, Chip, or, or are you, William? Well, it was Chip. Okay. And uh, Chip was a reporter covering air pollution. Uh, that's how we crossed paths. When I was spokesperson for the South Coast Air Quality Management District, the mm-hmm. regional air pollution agency, and I left there, and uh, Chip uh, went on to other things, and uh, later Chip called me and said, hey, there's an untold story here. Let's mm-hmm. let's get together on it. I was pretty shocked somebody hadn't already beat me to the punch, by the way. But, uh, <laughs> you know, my, my knowledge, like a lot of reporters, um, is a mile wide and an inch deep. Bill has great uh, content understanding of the subject. And so when I was thinking I wanted to write this with somebody, he was a natural choice. Okay. Now, well, was there any pollution in Los Angeles before? For smog, or you know what we know as smog, I think you say the date is in 1947. Was it uh, 1943? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, what happened? You know, there was periodic haze, industrial man-made haze in Los Angeles, um, predating that July 1943 attack, uh-huh. um, and it was enough to. I mean, it hit it with enough frequency and. Um, you know, uh, intensity that it uh, caused the city councils in Los Angeles and other places to pass uh, anti-smoke ordinances mainly. Yeah. And, and this is going after the obvious sources. It had never come and stayed like it did in 1940s, and that's why we saw this explosion of, of activity and new bureaucracies. Now, was there any one particular cause of that in 1943? I'm, I would think that driving would be down a little bit in the area because of the war. But. You're absolutely right. Driving was down, though. Los Angeles was still the car capital of the world at that point. Um, but it was really the just uh, huge uh, proliferation of industries that came before the war and especially during the war. That just produced a huge volume of new industrial emissions. Okay, now... Immediately following that, or say in the 40s, did, did Los Angeles react to it in any way, the, the smog situation? Were there a lot of occurrences of what happened in uh, July of 43? Bill, do you want to take that one? Well, uh, I think what you have to understand about this area is that it is a bowl uh, surrounded by mountains, and within that bowl, the air tends to be very stagnant. And the smoke from uh, fires when the Indians lived here would uh, stay in this bowl, 
uh, and could be seen, you know, uh, from the ocean by Spanish explorers in the area. Uh, and when the industrialization occurred during World War II, it just kind of built up to a point where it overwhelmed the air in the area. It, it just was too stagnant too much of the time to uh, stand the emissions from the growing number of industries. And starting uh, in the war, in that day in 1943, uh, at once we got to that point, the air here was pretty much polluted more days than not, uh, sometimes you know worse than others. And so there was a public uh, fear of what was going on and a reaction. You know, government started to uh, to look at the problem and, and try to solve it. But it took many, many years, and that's what we talk about in the book. What was the first thing that government tried to do? The first thing they did was sort of what you and I probably would do if we were put behind this gigantic problem. We'd go after the obvious sources. We'd look at the smokestacks um, at big manufacturers. We'd look at uh, the operations of power companies and the oil companies, and we would tell them they have to put um, better um, and newly innovated filters and traps on their equipment so they didn't just disgorge this huge volume of junk into the air. The, the other thing that, that came not long after that was that people burned their garbage in their backyard, right. these little incinerators. Yeah. Uh, that was banned. Uh, down in Orange County, uh, in the days of orange groves, farmers would set out smudge pots during frosts to uh, keep the, the fruit from, uh, from freezing at night. Uh, eventually that was banned. Uh, so they went after smoke. Mm-hmm. That was really the first thing. And when the smoke was gone, the smog remained. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're talking about those regulations, what's the timeline on those, the smudge pots and the, and the incinerators? Is that about 1960? This is, I would say this goes from the late 40s to the mid-50s. Okay. By the mid-50s, and Bill referenced this, there was sort of this delicious uh, aggravation going on because they had attacked every place that would seemingly be the source of L.A.'s pollution, and they didn't realize that all these millions of cars here and coming here were really the breeder of it. And um, if you want to talk about denial, um, Los Angeles was in a collective case of denial because, after all, it was the new metropolis and a paradise created for the car and by the car. Now, now I'm I'm curious because there was at the same time that as the cars were flooding into Southern California, it was around this time, at least as urban legend has it, yes. that the rail lines, the uh, the blue line, the red line, were being pulled up in a conspiracy among General Motors and uh, Goodyear Tire and Standard Oil. Supposedly, that's those were sort of the political forces behind that. How much, in fact, of an impact pulling up these these rail lines did it have? On, on air pollution in, in L.A. Bill, do you want to do that one? Well, I, I think that uh, really there were two things going on. There was the takeover of the public transit system uh, that had been here when the area had a downtown in Los Angeles and then small uh, towns surrounding it and farmland uh, in between. Um, However, uh, with the advent of the auto uh, and people uh, uh, attaining prosperity, you know, uh, beginning with World War II and particularly after World War II, uh, 
suburbanization started in Los Angeles. So the two things really went hand in hand. I don't think you can say that the suburbanization of Los Angeles stemmed completely from uh, the dismantlement of the uh, uh, the, 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 the rail system. It was going to happen anyway. Place. It was going to yeah, happen anyway. They, they went hand in hand. Yeah. But the, the, the timing is very curious. Because within about a five, five or six-year period, you had the sale and dissolution of the old uh, red car line and the uh, inner city trolley and uh, the birth of freeways and then the absolute assault of smog. And, it, it, I mean, there was enough material for a very juicy conspiracy theory. And, um, in fact, that lived on through many generations. Yet when you really get to the bottom of it and you look, um, there was an antitrust case against um, really against General Motors. Um, you, you don't find massive secrets and collusion and those types of things. You, you just find aggressive business practices. But, um, you know, there, the courts did look at it, and there was never really any sh- smoking gun. It still seems very curious. Well, d- isn't it just a matter of just allowing, <clears throat> you know, businessmen to go out and buy up uh, much of the right-of-ways and make it nearly impossible to continue to maintain the system as opposed to actually dismantling it? Um, yes, um, and overall, the problem was when we realized these cars, you know, based on the uh, internal combustion engine, and when you don't combust fuel 100%, you're just creating the genesis of smog, um, there wasn't an alternative. So a politician couldn't say, okay, people, out of your car, hop on the red car line, we'll throw some money at it. They didn't exist anymore. So there was no alternative but to depend on technology and the car makers to make the products cleaner. And the freeway system is a, is a product of the late 40s, early 50s? Is that a, when the Pasadena Freeway was? Wasn't that the first freeway? It, it was the first freeway in California. Mm-hmm. You know, it started really going in the late 30s, and uh, the freeway plan was done, I believe, in the 40s and um, hit its peak in the 50s. And we're speaking with Chip Jacobs and Bill Kelly. The book is Smog Town, The Lung-Burning History of Pollution in Los Angeles. Now, you spoke about the denial that just citizens have about... Uh, the cause of their smog, and then their I, their ability to go out and buy cars and, and suburban homes, which is going to generate the smog. Uh, my host here likes to usually look for conspiracy theories and, and uh, blame the man, but <laughs> but we we are we are really uh, quite a bit responsible ourselves for the dilemma that we're in. Uh, along comes uh, the A. QMD, though, and uh, how did you get involved in that, Bill Kelly? Well, I uh, came to the Air District in 88, and it was a time when there had been uh, a uh, lack of progress for uh, many years on air pollution, and the legislature had reorganized the Air District and sort of given it a a kick in the seat of the pants and said, get going and do something more aggressive. Mm So uh, it was a time when the agency had uh, new leadership in place and had put together a, uh, or was putting together a sort of sweeping plan showing really for the first time how the air could really be cleaned up in Los Angeles. Uh, Up to that time, the Air District had never really developed a plan showing that the air actually could be cleaned up. And uh, that plan outlined a whole vision for uh, renewable energy and use of electric vehicles and uh, many other cleaner industries uh, with non-polluting materials. 
and um, it, it was very exciting. Uh, 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 some of that happened, but to date, uh, most of it really still hasn't happened. But it's very interesting that Bill was there at the cusp of a new revolution. We'd, we'd made a lot of progress fighting smog by forcing the car makers to develop cleaner burning engines, and the oil companies like Arco developed you know, much better gasolines. But we still had a tremendous amount of smog, and Bill was there when they tried to you know, um, end the war. And many of the ideas back then that were considered radical and orthodox and infeasible are today the um, pillars of a green future. And so we always seem to go back to what common sense tells us. The problem often is energy prices and gasoline prices, and people just forget. Uh, Chip, I seem to have found a fellow traveler in the world of conspiracy theories, <laughs> so I'm going I'm to ask you this question. Uh, it goes back to... Um, uh, a time well now I've, now I lost my train of thought on my conspiracy here, but uh, when when did the AQMD when was it established? What was the year that it actually came into existence? It was established really in 1976 and really uh, opened its doors uh, in 1977. Okay. Before that, there were county air pollution control districts um, in each county, and and the problem at the time was that Los Angeles County had most of the sources of air pollution, the big industries, most of the people, but the pollution blew downwind into uh, Orange County sometimes and into Riverside and San Bernardino, and those people really had no political uh, representation or leverage over these major sources upwind in L.A. County, and they wanted to get some, and that was really the driving force behind the formation of the multi-county agency. Well, and, l- and let's give credit uh, to uh, Governor Brown, who who was uh, was he not instrumental in sort of uh, spearheading this? Well, he si- he signed that bill that was uh, done during his time, and uh, Governor Jerry Brown. That's right, and uh, the, he he uh, pressed the. Uh, the air districts of oh, the counties before, and then and then uh, subsequently uh, the South Coast Air District to move more aggressively on air pollution. But think about the irony there. You know, uh, Jerry Brown's father, Edmund Brown, Pat Brown. He was the infrastructure go- governor. He was the um, you know uh, the freeways and the, the freeways and building the schools and infrastructure right. and and really condoning and. Um, expanding the suburban lifestyle. Uh, we have Ronald Reagan as governor, and then, Jer- then Edmund's son takes over. It's sort of like repeat, you know, revolving between the Bushes and the Clintons, and the son comes in to try to unwind some of the ecological damage wrought by his father's, you know, grand designs. Um, it, it is a very interesting father-son tangle, I think, and Bill brings it out very well in the book. Yes. Well, let's remind our listeners we're speaking with Chip Jacobs and William and Bill Kelly. The book is Smogtown, the lung-burning history of pollution in Los Angeles. I, I lived in the San Fernando Valley in the 60s and uh, can remember green days, the smog being so thick that it kind of took a brown-green tinge to it. Same with um, when I travel in, in the 1970s to Claremont. Uh, we we'll back up against the hills there, or the mountains there. Same sort of thing. Uh, what kind of health problems did this cause? Did people die from smog? I, in fact, uh, Mike and I, uh, just to go one step further, uh, just read a news article today where $28 billion annually uh, it costs the California right. economy for premature deaths and illnesses. Are, are we really talking about a lot of, of deaths? 
Um, I will tell you, uh, uh, this is something we've discussed a lot, and it, it, it's filtered through the book. Smog was a very, very serious health threat. It was like cholesterol, however, in that it, it was more of a silent killer. It wasn't dramatic. People didn't just combust on the street. Yeah. <laughs> they tended to get, if they were susceptible, asthma emphysema, lung cancer, um, immune system problems. Uh, uh, and we, it started being seen by doctors as early as the mid-1940s and through the 1960s. And uh, if you would go back and try to calculate it, we, uh, you, you could easily make the argument smog has killed more people than traffic accidents, gang warfare, local losses in uh, international wars in California. It, it really uh, is a gigantic killer of people, especially the um, respiratory vulnerable and um, the young and the old. Um, and oftentimes doctors in the 50s particularly had to fight the business establishment to say, though we don't have the you know, slam-dunk statistical evidence and equipment to show you, we see patients coming in in the droves um, ill from what they're breathing. And it didn't make exactly for a pleasant uh, medical establishment, business establishment relationship. You know, there was real friction there. Yeah. Well, that that echoes what was what was at the time called living in Los Angeles was was a, akin to smoking a pack or two of cigarettes every day, and really the same sort of resistance from the medical establishment uh, came in the sense that they didn't want to acknowledge this the same way they didn't want to acknowledge cigarettes were having a detrimental health effect. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, when I was bringing up um, my living in the valley and uh, traveling to Claremont and the dark green smog, I, I haven't seen those um, conditions, even though I've been back in those areas. It seems that the AQMD has really uh, done a fine job, at least of, of mitigating what's been going on. I know we still have smog in Los Angeles, but I, I it, unless I'm crazy, I, I certainly... I believe that we've cleaned it up a bit from the uh, the high point of smog. Well, that's absolutely true. Uh, I mean, there. If you go back uh, even into the uh, the 1980s uh, and the early 1990s, the air here in at least the inland valleys around Los Angeles was unhealthful. You know, as much as one out of two days a year, um, and that's pretty bad. Uh, but uh, since then, uh, the AQMD did put some controls on industry. The other thing that happened that was a major step was that while we never got electric vehicles, uh, we did get much cleaner gasoline-burning cars and cleaner gasoline in those cars. And that was uh, under rules that the State Air Resources Board adopted. And as those cars... Uh, those cleaner cars have replaced the older cars, you know, dirtier cars. That That's made a remarkable difference mm -hmm. in our air quality here, you know, coupled with uh, controls on industry. But, but having said that, uh, it's important to note that there's still, uh, according to the latest study from, you know, Cal State Fullerton, uh, 3,000 people who die prematurely, $28 billion in largely health costs uh, due to air pollution levels today, and many, many more, you know, who have uh, uh, respiratory uh, illnesses uh, uh, or exacerbation of respiratory illnesses like asthma due to air pollution levels today. So 
we've made a lot of progress, but uh, we still have a long way to go. And and uh, actually, the uh, the the plan now that they're operating under, you know, expects the air to be unhealthful in you know past 2020. Now, that brings up something. Uh, was my understanding, this may have changed, but many, many years ago, 10, 12, 15 years ago, I remember hearing someone say, we've cleaned up the visible smog, the stuff that the, the soup that we used to see rising up uh, every day. But, but in fact, there's still an awful lot of dangerous particulates in the air. That, in well, fact, that, that it's sort of a, almost a triumph of PR. Oh, look, it's, it looks cleaner, but actually, and, and we, I acknowledge we've made a lot of progress, but is it? In fact, true that there's still an awful lot of the bad stuff in the air. We just don't see it as clearly as we used to. Well, anyone that's flown into Los Angeles uh, or Orange County on a uh, you know summer day or a, a fall day uh, and comes over those mountains, you know, from the east, uh, can see the sea of particles uh, in this air basin. Uh, you, you know, you look down and suddenly you can't really see the ground that well. Yeah. Those are uh, all little tiny particles of pollution that are reflecting the light mm-hmm. upwards. Uh, on the ground, you, you barely see them mm-hmm. because the light is coming from above and reflecting off of them. But when you fly over them, you can really see how bad it remains here. And those particles are the ones that are uh, probably the most egregious in uh, causing ill health. Yeah. A lot of it is diesel particles, and unlike the bigger particles from ozone-based smog, these uh, particular matters are, are so small they can actually penetrate your lungs yeah. and get into your bloodstream and then metastasize from there. That's the real danger. You know, you, in medical terms, you, you want a bigger particle because it, your body blocks it more, and that's where we're seeing whole generations of ill, and especially down at the ports. There's a, there's a sort of a perverse part of this equation. While we all want better air, we all want clean air. The 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 unfortunate fact of this is is that there's a political constituency, a significant political constituency here in California. We love our cars, and therefore our our desire to hold on to our cars makes us as much an impediment to to cleaning up the air as it does a willing participant in seeing that it is cleaned up. I mean, I wish we would have said it that well. Very, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, and well, <laughs> and well, it's changing. And I, I think there's something else about this. This it's perverse, though. Yeah. It is perverse. It is a perverse. But the the the, uh, the thing about this, and I, I think it needs to be kind of highlighted, that this desire on the part of Californians, this great desire to clean up our environment, going back to this time when we were worried about uh, more uh, about smog and the rest of it, is that it's it gave a great push to the environmental movement across the country it it certainly did and it really did sort of i mean and so i think it needs to be said that in fact through the work of yourself bill Bill kelly and others and the rest of you that have done this is that there is so much more awareness uh, as you travel around the country about smog air pollution but really that feeds into a much bigger issue of how are we going to clean up our environment and i want to acknowledge that yep uh i want to ask about ethanol is that any way to go uh, for Californians at all? Well, I will try to address that. I mean, I think that right now the big issue in California that's coming to the fore is global warming, and the state is trying to reduce its uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And one of the things that they're looking to to do that is 
ethanol. And the idea there is because you make the ethanol out of plants, uh, you burn it in the air and then you grow more plants and the plants take the carbon that you release when you burn it, you know, out, uh, out of the air. And so you're recycling carbon rather than using uh, a depletable resource that's renewable. Um, there are some uh, problems with ethanol. You know, one of them is that it may actually increase smog-forming pollution, uh, so that the more ethanol you burn, you know, in essence, it's it's adding uh, harmful pollutants to the air that cause ill health. Uh, the, the other problem with ethanol is that uh, because right now it's made largely from corn, it may actually uh, not represent new energy because you have to use fossil fuels like natural gas and oil, you know, to uh, grow the corn and, and, and transport it to where ethanol is made. Um, but the bigger problem with it is that you need huge amounts of land to grow crops to make enough fuel uh, to make ethanol a meaningful supply. And if you convert land where you now grow food to growing fuel, someone somewhere has to clear more land to replace the food yeah. that was once grown. And when you do that, typically they're burning down forest or grassland, and that's releasing huge amounts of carbon dioxide into the air. So this is a problem that uh, right now is uh, stymied ethanol to some extent, and it will be uh, worked out in the coming you know years as to whether you know corn-based ethanol is really... Uh, going to help us reduce greenhouse gases or not. Before we let you go, I, I just want to know, what do you think our future is, say, five years out? Do you see things cleaning up here at all? What's, you know, with the politics that we have and with, with the concerns that we have, is there a good future for us? Well, I will say I think um, our technology will get better. Our ability to understand disease and identify it quicker will improve. I am not sure about um, whether we will ever really permanently kill off the smog because I don't know if we're ready to do away with um, our lifestyles that produce it, and that's been the fundamental problem. We, we've sort of done with smog what we've done a lot of times with cancer, which is we've beat it into a livable situation where we can coexist with it until it finally wears us down. Right. I, I fear that may be, may be the, the future. Smog is, is greatly down in quantity, but this is where you miss the point, a lot of people, because it's much deadlier at low, lower levels, we're finding. So um, I think we will continue to see visible improvements, but I'm not sure if we will ever fully slay it. Bill? I, I would agree with that. Um, and I would say that as the state now turns to global warming, you know, they have to be careful to not do things to solve uh, that problem uh, and uh, possibly increase uh, smog, you know, while doing it. Law of unintended consequences. Yeah. Well, right. well, it's, uh, I want to thank you both for being here, Chip Jacobs and, and Bill Kelly. The book is Smogtown, the Lung-Burning History of pollution in Los Angeles. As someone who's lived through much of that history, I appreciate this terrific overview, and thank you for being here on Weekly Signals. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, 
or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.